Um, this morning, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 3. So Galatians 3 is where we're going to be today. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up there. Um, how's everybody doing? Good, terrific, cool, awesome, delightful. The weather is so wonderful and wet. Um, all right. So as you're turning to Galatians 3, I would like to thank, uh, they're not, most of them are not here because they're upstairs, but our Grace Place volunteers. Uh, Grace Place is important and so vital to, um, to what we do here because we're a church who loves to preach the gospel and proclaim the gospel, uh, and the gospel is for all people, including the little, little ones. And so our Grace Place volunteers uh, serve the children of our church teaching them about who God is, teaching them about how much he loves them, teaching them uh, what it looks like to be part of a community. They share prayer requests together. They engage, they engage with one another. They check on each other. It's really a, a beautiful ministry, and it's so vital and so important. And selfishly, as a dad, it is so uh, important to me um, and, and so impactful to my family. And so everybody who is involved in that ministry, thank you so much for loving and caring for the kids of our church. Uh, if that is something that interests you, and you say, uh, maybe, but I have no experience with kids. We'll train you. We'll teach you. You won't be there by yourself. We have lots of volunteers who are really good at what they do and who love kids and are passionate about it. And we'd love to get you plugged in. Let me tell you, I've been up there a couple of times when I'm not preaching. It's fun. It's awesome. It's exciting. It's a place you want to be. If you want to get a break from me talking at you every week, that's a great place to go spend a Sunday morning. So, um, Fill out on your Connect cards. You can circle Grace Place. We'll get you connected. We'll get you plugged in. Now, obviously, we're dealing with kids. We're dealing with minors. So there is background checks that go into that. We don't want to keep everybody safe. Um, so just know that ahead of time. Uh, but we'd love to get you some more information if you are interested in jumping in on Grace Place. Um, all right. So this morning, we're in Galatians 3 as we have been walking through uh, the book of Galatians for the last, like, two and a half months. Uh, and so the plan is today to finish Galatians 3. So I had a professor in seminary. Uh, his name is Dr. John Woodbridge, and he is a wonderful, caring, gracious man. That has nothing to do with what I'm about to tell you. I just like to talk about how wonderful he is. Um, Dr. Woodbridge is uh, an expert in church history. Uh, that's, that's, his, that's his world. And so I had a class with him, uh, History of Christianity. And that class was once a week for three hours on Monday nights. It was 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. every Monday night. So we had to cover a lot of ground because we only met once a week. Uh, Dr. Woodbridge is known for not only being an expert in church history, but also known uh, by, for going off on tangents, we shall say, uh, and just kind of talking. And so some weeks uh, that happened unintentionally. He just kind of got down a rabbit hole and got lost. And then some weeks we asked questions kind of leading him to topics that he liked to talk about uh, just to see what would happen, especially as the night got later. Like right in the 8 o'clock hour, we could get him to talk about whatever. It was a lot of fun. But... The downside of doing that is sometimes we would get together and he would say, okay, what we're going to do today is some cross-country skiing, which meant we were going to cover a bunch of hundred years, a lot of time in a very small amount of time. We were going to cover hundreds of years of history in like 45 minutes. Um, the idea of cross-country skiing, that's kind of what we're doing today. We're covering a lot of verses today, a lot of topics. Um, Maybe some of them briefer than what we usually do. I don't think we're doing it to the neglect of these things. Uh, but we are going to cover a lot today. We're covering like 15 verses today, which if you've been here, especially for Galatians, that's way more than what we've been doing. Uh, but I think it's important because I think doing it that way and doing a bigger chunk all at once is going to help us kind of flush out and better comprehend Paul's logic and thought process throughout the rest of this chapter. Um, as well as I think it's going to help us 
not get lost in the weeds. Because let me tell you, there are some verses that we're going to look at this morning that you can get lost in the weeds on. I did for a lot of time this week. Um, and so I want to keep us kind of head above water, and I want to keep us focused on the main things this morning. So um, our main things I want us to cling to today. We're going to go a lot of different places. What I want us to cling to today, and I will remind you of these things, kind of use them as our anchor, is that the promise God made to Abraham, it still matters. Jesus fulfills the promise and the law, and that that promise matters not only um, legally speaking, but it matters for us today. And so the promise remains. Jesus fulfills the law and the promise, and the promise matters for us today. Those are the kind of things, no matter where we go, you might look up at one point and say, I have no idea what Tim's talking about. Those are the three things I want you to cling to today. All right? So I'm going to pray, and then we are going to get to work. Uh, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning and this opportunity to worship you, to celebrate you, to enjoy you, to hear from you, to engage with you. It's a great blessing and honor to be able to come together and gather and to be known as your church, to be known as your people. And while it is a blessing and honor, we also know there's a responsibility there, a responsibility to live in light of that title live in light of being your sons and daughters. God, I pray that you would help us live into that. Help us to understand what that means. Help us to understand and to enjoy and celebrate and rest in what that means. And then also, Lord, help us to live in response to that. God, as we open your word this morning, we come here to hear from you. And we believe that you are in control of all things at all times, which means that today, regardless of what our motivations were for coming to church, today we are here in this section of Scripture, on this Sunday, we are here because you want us here, because you have something to say. You have a divine appointment for us this morning. So Lord, help us to set aside whatever distractions, whatever baggage we might have that would hinder us from hearing from you. Help us to have ears to hear hearts to believe, minds to understand, eyes to see, and hands and feet to respond. Lord, as I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. All right. So we're going to be in uh, Galatians 3, starting in verse 15. So I'm going to read the whole big chunk, and then we'll go back uh, and kind of break it up. To give a human example, brothers, Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. 
So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Like I said, we're going to do some cross-country skiing today. The promise remains. He begins verse 15 here to give a human example, to catch us up. So we've been talking about this idea of law versus grace, law versus promise. And he's been making his argument, Paul has been making his argument that we find our right standing with God, we are justified, have declared innocent before God based not on our works, not on the law, not on circumcision, not on any of these things, but based on by grace, through faith in Christ alone. And so Paul has made that argument, declared that argument. And then we looked uh, last week, and he had a lot of Old Testament scripture. He said, let's go to what the Bible has to say. Let's use the Bible to interpret the Bible. And he goes scripture after scripture, quoting the Old Testament, quoting the law itself to say, look, this was never intended to save you. This was never intended to be the eternal plan. This was always temporary. Over and over, he repeats himself. And now Paul, being the Pharisee, being the kind of lawyer, is continuing with his argument. He says, I'll give you some more ideas, some more uh, examples of what this means and how this plays out. And so he says, to give a human example. So he used scripture as his illustration. Now he's going to say, let's talk about something we all can tangibly understand. He says, to give a human example, brothers. I want to stop there. Don't skip that, the way that Paul addresses these Jewish leaders. We've talked about how they have come in and they have targeted his character and his message. They are proclaiming a false message, a a message that they are claiming to be the gospel, which is, in fact, false. Though they were his opponents, Paul's heart for the gospel, his heart and passion and zeal and desire to see the gospel proclaimed and known extends also to the very people who were opposing him, and he calls them his brothers. When we disagree, not if, but when, when we disagree, When we have conflicts with one another, we would benefit greatly by remembering this very simple word from Paul, who it is we are talking to when you get into disagreements and arguments with someone else, whether or not they are actually a Christian. If they claim to be a Christian, you don't know their heart, but if you get into an argument, disagreement, fight with a fellow Christian, Paul calls them brothers. Remember who it is you are talking to. You are talking to your family. You are engaging with your family through God. So Paul says, let's take a human example. He says, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Ratified means made official. At a certain point with man-made covenants, you cannot change it. Once both parties have agreed, you cannot change it. In other words, like for something for us, your will, right? You have your last will and testimony. Who gets what, when, uh, what things happen, what should happen after you die. This can be changed and modified and corrected all the way up until you pass away. But after that point, it can't be changed anymore. And so Paul's argument is simple. It said, if that's how we treat covenants and contracts between people, if that's just how we do this, how much more then should that apply when we talk about God? So two weeks ago, we looked at Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, where God makes the promise to Abraham where he takes him outside and he says, Abraham, as many stars as you can count in the sky are how many descendants you will have. 
And he talks about making a promise of descendants and of land. You will have a land I have set aside for you. And that you will have blessings upon blessings and you will be a blessing to all the nations. God makes a promise to Abraham. And Abraham hears this promise from God. He believed God, he trusted God, and so because of that, he inherited the righteousness of God by having faith in God. It wasn't that he did anything, it wasn't that he performed in any specific way. He had faith, he trusted that God was going to do what he said he was going to do, and because of that, God granted to Abraham his righteousness. And so we see in verse um, 17, This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. We'll jump back up to 16 in a second. He says the law shows up 430 years after the promise from God, after the covenant God makes with Abraham, right? We talked about this, that there's no way that works righteousness, that the law could be the thing that grants us our right standing with God because Abraham had his right standing with God 430 years before the law was even a thing. And so the law showing up does not change or annul or amend what God has already promised to Abraham and vicariously to us that the relationship between us and God, our right standing with God, is not based on anything but by grace through faith in Christ. This promise from God to Abraham was, yes, it was about land. It was tangible promises, right? You're gonna have, there's going to be a land for your descendants. You will have descendants. There will be blessing. There were tangible things God promised Abraham. But we know our God doesn't just think in the tangible. He doesn't think just in the local. He's always thinking better, bigger. He's always thinking in more abundance. And so the promise that God makes to Abraham went well beyond Abraham to future generations that would come through Abraham. Specifically, he points out in verse 16, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, who is Christ. It has to do with offspring, or some translations might say seed. And it doesn't say offsprings, it doesn't say seeds. It says one, the one, the set-apart one, the chosen one, the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus. He is the ultimate fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. God promised Abraham not only would he be blessed, but through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. That blessing comes by and through Jesus, through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Because through that, by placing our faith in that, we find new relationship with God. And so Paul continues in verse 18. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by the promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. If Abraham received the blessing and fulfillment of the promise from God because of the law, then it was no longer about the covenant from God. If Abraham somehow found his righteousness based in what he could do to earn it, then this covenant, this promise is null and void. It no longer matters. But we know that's not the case because the law hadn't even shown up yet. Abraham's relationship with God wasn't based on the law. The blessing wasn't based on the law. His right standing wasn't based on the law. It was by grace through faith. Just as our relationship with God is not based on our works, on our uh, adherence to the law. Our redemption isn't based on the law. Our right standing with God isn't based on the law. It is grounded and founded and rooted by grace through faith in Christ. 
And so this argument that Paul is battling, pushing back against is an argument that was coming from the Jewish leaders saying, okay, fine, there was this promise to Abraham, but Moses and the law gives us something new and that makes it better and it changes what was already established. The argument says that things might have started with a promise, but the law in fact supersedes or at the very least amends how things work now. But that doesn't work. The law didn't change God and Abraham's relationship or covenant, and so it, isn't, it didn't change the relationship with the rest of us either. Right relationship with God comes only by grace through faith in God, and so it's promise over law. The promise remains unchanged. And the promise remains, and Jesus fulfills that promise. And not only does he fulfill the promise, but he fulfills the law on top of it. And so as we've been talking for these last however many weeks, we've been talking about this law and promise, law and grace, over and over again. I think the logical thought that many of us might have had at some point in reading through this is, okay, so then what's the point of the law? Why does it even exist? If it can't save us, if it can't do anything but constrain, if it can't do anything but show us our sin, what, what's the point of having the law? Why does it even exist? There's multiple reasons for it. The big ones that Paul talks about and references in this passage is one, that it restrains evil. Without the law, it would be chaos. We saw that when we looked at Genesis or Exodus and Mount Sinai, and we'll talk about it again this morning, about how without the law, the Israelites kind of did whatever they wanted, right? Before, literally, as the law is coming down the mountain, they're making an idol. The law restrains evil. For us, if we didn't have speed limits, what would our streets look like? I mean, probably not much different because you can't get anywhere because everyone's got three cars now, but if you could drive fast, we would. But we don't. Why? Because there's that fear of getting a ticket, right? And it restrains evil. It's the reason why we go five or ten miles an hour over the speed limit, not 45. It might not destroy evil. It might not totally eradicate evil. But the law restrains evil. And it's also a diagnostic tool. We've talked about this the last couple of weeks. It's the MRI. It reveals to us the problems that we have. It reveals our heart. It reveals our sin. It reveals the reality that we, by ourselves, on our own nature, are wicked enemies against God. Some people want to hear that and say, I don't like, I don't like that message. I was told by someone... I like it better when, when the message is happy, when, when the sermon is, is happy and I feel good. And I always want us to leave here rejoicing in the, in the sovereignty and, and holiness and goodness and love of God. But sometimes to do that and to truly revel in who God is and what he has done for us, we do need to talk about the wickedness and the reality of sin in our hearts. There are some who are going to say, well, you know what? Man is basically good, inherently good. Or really, if you don't want to stick your neck out for somebody else, most of us will say, well, I'm basically good. Yeah, you probably are good. You're good when you're, doing, when you're the one doing the comparing to other people. When you're the one choosing who you compare yourself to. When you're the one deciding what is and isn't good enough to be good. When you get to be the judge and jury, then somehow every time, no matter what you do, you are able to justify it to yourself and decide, at least I'm not like one of those people. 
See, it's easy to make much of yourself when you decide to compare yourself in your strengths to somebody else's weakness. Or for Christians, Christians tend to compare ourselves to non-Christians in the way that we're moral and they're not moral, which is an unfair comparison because Christians have the Holy Spirit who guides and rebukes and convicts and challenges us. But see, the law doesn't allow for any of that. Because the standard and expectation the law provides for comparison is perfection. And it's there that every one of us falls short. And the reality, in that reality, the fact that we will fall short, if you want to talk about your goodness, your morality, and you want to compare it to the standard set by God, you will fall short. And that reality is the point of the law, that we don't measure up to the standard and expectation set by God. We are stuck, lost, dead, trapped. But there's always a but. Look at verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of the transgressions. What's that next word? Until. No trick questions. It was added because of the transgressions until. Meaning that the law was there to do its convicting, to do its revealing for a limited time. It's got a clock on it. It was never meant to be forever. It was meant to be until. Until the offspring. Who is the offspring? Jesus. If ever we're going to have that right answer, this is the morning to have that right answer. The offspring that we just spent seven minutes talking about, the single offspring, Jesus, until the offspring should come. The law was meant to hold, to contain, to limit, to restrict, and we'll talk about that in a minute, to do all of these different things, but not to do them forever. When Jesus comes, things change. It's not that he came to revoke or destroy the law or create this brand new thing that was going to tear down everything else, but actually he does it by fulfilling the law. Matthew 5.17, he says it himself, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. No, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He came to do what was always the plan. And so if you are a person trying to impress God with your checklist of morality, trying to win him over, trying to keep on his good side by making sure that your goodness outweighs your badness, hear me when I say this. God, in his, him revealing himself in his word right here, just wrote and told you that you are wasting your time and life by doing that. You are trying to do something you aren't supposed to be doing because the law was there until the offspring came, until Christ came. Well, he already came. And so if now you are doing something that you are no longer supposed to be doing, you are now in sin. And so the more and more you are trying to earn, win, impress God with your works righteousness, the more and more you find yourself walking away from the will of God and in darkness. The offspring, the one, the Messiah, the Christ has come. He lived perfectly. He died painfully, and he rose from the dead victoriously. It's finished. The work is over. Rest in the grace and mercy and dwell in the presence of your Savior. Let's keep reading in verse 19. Because as we read in verse 19 and 20, Paul is going to make mention of intermediaries. Intermediaries are go-betweens, the kind of person who helps make sure contracts and covenants are fair and get executed correctly. So I'm going to read 19 and 20. Excuse me. Why then the law? 
It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary, intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Anybody confused by those two verses? Okay, I'm not alone. Okay, you're not alone either. I read a book that said these verses, 20 specifically, are some of the most random and debated verses in the New Testament. One book said there are over 250 different interpretations of what Paul is saying in verse 20. Over 250. So we got a lot of work to go through. All right, number one, here we go. No, we're not going to do that. This is one of those places we could get stuck in the weeds if we really wanted to. If we get consumed fixating on verses that everybody degrees are really confusing. Now look, when we have the Bible, sometimes when we're reading the Bible and we're studying the Bible, we got to do some work. we got to do some legwork because it's written to a specific people at a specific time. We are not those people. So yes, going to commentaries, going to word studies, listening to scholars and sermons on different passages, those things can help. When we come to a passage, you come to a verse and say, I have no idea what the author is saying here. Sometimes you got to do some legwork. But after you get through all of that and you do the work and you're still like, I have no idea what he is saying here. What's helpful is to remember, it's a quote from Pastor Alistair Begg. He says it often. The main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. For us, this morning, the promise remains. Jesus fulfills the promise and the law, and that promise matters today. That's what we're clinging to. And with that, I'll give you what I think he's saying in 19 and 20. I could very well be wrong. If you do the work this week and you figure it out, PastorTimCF at gmail.com, I would love to know what he's talking about. Here's what I got. Verse 19, he says, The promise was put in place through angels by an intermediary. This is referring to Moses up on Mount Sinai when he receives the Ten Commandments from God. God gave it to the angels. Angels give it to Moses. Moses acted as the intermediary between the people of Israel and God. You can even say the angels are sort of an intermediary between God and Moses, if you want to take it that far. Moses then takes the message to the people, and it doesn't go well, right? By the time he comes down from the mountain, they've made the golden calf. But see, we miss up how the timeline on how that story goes. Because God gives the Ten Commandments, and then like, I think it's ten chapters later, is when, he's, when Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. So they know the Ten Commandments. The Israelites have heard God give them the law, and they say, we are all in, we are here for it, we are going to obey every word of it, God. Moses leaves to go up to the mountain, and then they lose their minds, and they build a golden calf. Moses doesn't do a great job with being an intermediary. The people don't respond perfectly to Moses' instructions, and Moses doesn't respond perfectly to when the people rebel against him. The relationship between God and man, and man and man, is still broken by sin. And so verse 20, I think what Paul is referring back to is the idea that the promise, in so this is the law, the law comes through an intermediary, the promise was God and Abraham. God and Abraham without the need for an intermediary. God spoke directly to Abraham, and then it was fulfilled and carried out directly by God himself in Jesus. God initiates the promise and carried it out himself, because God is one. He can do that. And that God is one is a reference to the prayer of the people, one of the most famous prayers for the Jewish people in Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is 
one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Jesus himself says in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. So the promise came and was fulfilled with no intermediary and could only be filled by one of the parties involved, God himself stepping in to fulfill it, whereas the law needed intermediaries, and even then, it was broken. And so with this brokenness of the law, and the fact that it doesn't last forever, it was never meant to last forever, verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? No, certainly not, he says. We've already talked about this. The law came from God. Does God give bad things? No, therefore the law is not bad. It's just not eternal and it doesn't justify us. It doesn't make us right with God. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the law was not set up for us to earn righteousness, but rather show us how trapped we are. It wasn't the point of the law. If we could earn our way through it, we would, but we can't, so we don't. Rather, the law shows us how trapped we are, he says in verse 22. The scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The scripture imprisoned everything under sin. The law traps us. It gives us this list of things, this do's and do nots. It shows us that we are by nature prisoners of sin, stuck, trapped in sin. If we weren't, we would and could stop sinning. But since we won't, don't, can't stop sinning, instead we sit in our cells, confined by the revelation from the law of our sinful hearts. The law has revealed to us our brokenness, that we don't measure up to perfection. The law reveals to us, right, it's the MRI that says, look, here's the standard you're supposed to be trying to hit. It shows you, here's all the places you fall short of it. So we are stuck. It reveals our sinful hearts. And so we sit in our jail cell confined by sin, but we sit with a purpose. We sit with a purpose. Is the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. If a law had been given, sorry, 22, the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So that. We are imprisoned everything under sin so that, there's the purpose, the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. He says the same thing in verse 23. We were held captive under the law. We were imprisoned until faith would be revealed. Martin Luther says that when the law drives you to the point of despair, let it drive you a little further. Let it drive you straight into the arms of Jesus. The bars of our jail cell, built by sin, the bars are strong. There's no filing through them. There's no opportunity to dig a hole Andy Dufresne style and tunnel your way out. But instead, we are given a chance. We are given a chance by the warden himself who comes and opens the door and grants us freedom. Not that we earned it. No, we're really guilty of everything we have been accused of. But if we will admit our guilt, if we will ask for help to be freed, then he will not only set us free, but he will do so by serving the punishment we deserve so that going forward, there is no more condemnation. There is no more accusation of our guilt. 
Our debt has been paid by God himself, and there is no retrial. We can't come back. They're not coming back to get us a second time for the same crime. It's done. It's over. The debt has been paid. See, the law isn't freedom. Our works righteousness, us trying to be better, just work harder, do better, it's not freedom. It's a jail cell. It's a prison. And the only escape is by grace through faith in Christ alone. Jesus was the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham that he would be a blessing to the nations. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the law as he is the only one who could actually perfectly live out the law and thereby be a perfect sacrifice for us so that we might have our debt paid, our sins forgiven, and new life granted to us. The promise remains. It has not been annulled. It has not been read. It has not been changed. It has not been amended. And Jesus fulfills the promise, and he fulfills the law. And this promise that was made so, so, so long ago, it still matters for us today. It still has importance for us today. Paul's got one more metaphor for us. Look at verse 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Yes, the law convicts us of sin and in doing so it imprisoned us is what Paul says. It left us in need of saving and rescuing and redeeming. But the law also acts as a guardian. It would also be like a a tutor is basically the word he's using there. And more so, even more than a tutor, it's one who helped raise uh, and at times disciplined and pointed children towards a life of obedience. So more like, not even a tutor so much as like a, like a nanny, babysitter, but like more in-depth. I don't know, it doesn't really play for us in today's world, but you, you guys get it. Guardian, let's say guardian. The law revealed God's character. It reveals his heart toward not only sin, but to injustice to pain, to suffering, even to things like rest and celebrations. Those are all things within the law. God tells us in the law, celebrate these things. Celebrate Passover. Celebrate the new harvest. He says when you celebrate, celebrate and party hard. God cares about us enjoying our lives. And it reveals who God is. It reveals his heart to us. But a guardian or a babysitter, nanny, whatever you want to use... They aren't needed forever. It was needed until Christ came to justify us by faith. This is what we've already said, that the law, yes, it shows us our need for a Savior. It is the MRI, but it also created the space. It created the situation in which we couldn't do it on our own. We needed to be redeemed and brought out of. And that's what Christ did and is doing as we live by faith in him. He is still guiding, leading, directing us toward God. And now that faith has come, now that we have tasted and seen that that the Lord is good, now that we have experienced the blessings of God, things change. The relationship changes. We no longer need that guardian. Christ frees us from the law and allows us to grow up and step into our new identity as the children of God. You see it in verse 25. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, in verse 26, you are all sons of God through faith. No longer a need for a guardian. The law directed and faith gives us a new personhood. There is a radical change in the hearts and minds and identities when we enter into this new right relationship with God. Because now we go from being under the watch of a guardian, under the watch of needing someone to correct us and and keep us safe for our betterment, 
to being in the family of God. That one who is watching over us, that one who is guiding us, that one who is protecting us is now our dad, our God. We become the children of God. See, it's one thing when you're watching somebody else's kids versus your own kids. And when you are the kid, that's a different relationship between the babysitter and mom and dad. The relationship is different. No matter how much you might like the babysitter, you love mom and dad and have a different level of intimacy and relationship with them. In Christ, the relationship between us and God becomes more intimate. We are his children. We are the children of God, not because we earned it or worked our way to it, but by grace through faith in Christ alone. And so Paul says in verse 27 that for as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Note there he says you are baptized into Christ, not baptized into water. Baptism is important and it's good. It is a public declaration and demonstration of your faith in God. Amen. But you can get dunked a thousand times. You could be one of those people who goes overseas and gets baptized in the Jordan River, but none of that matters if you aren't baptized into Christ. That word baptized, baptizo, is immersed. Immersed into Christ. Submerge yourself into Christ. When we baptize, the person goes all the way underwater. You don't really see the person anymore. You just see mostly water. Too many of us just want a little bit of Jesus. We want to be splashed with a little bit of Jesus. We want to be sprinkled with a little bit of Jesus. But not get too wet, not get, not get too consumed, because if I do that, then I lose control of the places in my life that I want control. Jesus, you can have these areas, but my money, my identity, my sexual relationships, these different things, I'm going to keep these, Jesus. You can have some of the other stuff, but I'm going to hold on to these things. We only want a little bit. That's not submerging. That's not being baptized into Christ. Paul takes it even a step further and says, not only are we to be baptized, submerged into Christ, but we are to put on Christ, to change your clothes, to get rid of what you are wearing, to throw it away and put on something brand new, to be wearing Christ. Your outward display of your life should be noticeably changed and different as your life then points others to Christ. They should see Christ in you. So you can get baptized in water. And you can even play dress-up. It's easy to know the right words to say as a Christian, when you put your hands up, when you don't put your hands up in worship, how to fake it, how to make it look like you know what you're doing as a Christian. The outward actions, though, will ring hollow and empty if there's not a true spiritual baptism and putting on of Christ in your life. What Paul is talking about here is not just going through the physical outward motions, but actual real life change. The result of knowing the gospel, not just intellectually, I know the verses, I know what God did, but experientially, and choosing to let the gospel guide and drive every decision that we make, every opportunity, every interaction, every thought, we take them captive and filter them through the gospel. This reality of being baptized into Christ, putting on Christ, it comes back, kind of brings us back to 220, right? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It is a monumental change in everything. It is the gospel worked out. It is the gospel here and now played out. It is living out each day in light of this new spiritual reality that who I was before Christ is dead and buried and gone, and now something new has taken place. 
See, the gospel matters. It is for it, the matters now and here. It matters for just as God promised to bless all the nations. It matters because we are those nations. We are part of that blessing that God promised to Abraham. The way he chose to bless us was to free us from the slavery and bondage to sin so that we could live free here and now, live into the new life we've been given. The gospel changes identities. It changes relationships. It changes our reality. What what was once seen as unsurpassable differences, the things that separate and, and make it hard for us to have relationships, these things are changed in Christ, we see in verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are a one in Christ Jesus. I love getting to verses like this, because it's the kind of verse that gets cherry-picked out. We don't talk about the context of it, and you use a verse like this to justify bad, selfish theology. This verse does not mean there are no differences between us. It does not mean everything is open to everyone all the time because we've become Christians and now we're all the exact same, right? You become a Christian and you get stamped with this cookie cutter of this is what a Christian is and so everyone's the exact same. It doesn't mean we're all the same. It means the dividing lines that we as humans have instilled into our community don't need to exist in which they create a hierarchy and make some better than others. But... There are still specific roles and places for us. There's a reason Daniel won't let me sing on Sundays. Because I'm not good at it. It is not my skill set. It's not my gifting. See, Scripture lays out, when we read through all and we take all of Scripture, and we don't just take out verses that say, look, there's no difference between us, so everybody can do everything. But when you read all of Scripture, it lays out that though these social dividing lines should no longer be propped up. We still need order and function within community and relationships. What's the big argument happening throughout this letter? Why is this letter being written? The divide between Greeks and Jewish Christians. Well, if people are actually in Christ, if they have actually been baptized into Christ and they are put on Christ, then these lines don't matter because they are all saved by the same gospel. So it doesn't matter whether or not the, the, the Greek Gentile Christians get circumcised or not because you're all under the same grace of the same gospel. And we see in other New Testament letters that Paul writes how he challenges masters who have Christian slaves to change the dynamic, change the relationship, because in Christ our spiritual debts have been paid and we are all the sons and daughters, brothers and sisters in Christ. It changes the dynamic, it changes the relationship because our relationship with God and the reality of being in Christ, that supersedes every other relationship, every other interaction that we have here on earth. And for too long, women were seen as property, were secondary, were considered not as vital. But again, in Christ, there is no hierarchy. There is no one group who is more loved or more saved or more redeemed to a greater extent than the other. But hear me say, this, this, this verse does not mean everything is up for grabs and up for debate. There is still order and logic within the family of God, within households, within relationships, within a community, within how a church runs. This does not mean everything is up for debate. This means that the things that separate, the things, the walls that we put up so we can't have real relationships, those things are gone because we are all on the same footing. We are all sinners saved by grace. We are all in desperate need of a Savior who has saved us. 
John Stott said, there are differences in role and in function, but none in standing before God through faith in Jesus. When we say that Christ has abolished these distinctions, we, mean that they, we don't mean that they don't exist, but they no longer create barriers to fellowship. Because to ignore the diversity and uniqueness of the community of God and the functions and gifts and talents that diversity provides is to minimize the massive work God has done to bring the church together. To say that we're all the same is to ignore the fact that he brings a whole lot of people together. The the fact that the gospel opens up the possibility for fellowship and community and relationship and family to blossom and develop amidst the people from varying backgrounds and cultures. We can do that because we're all different, but it doesn't matter because we're all under the same banner of the grace of Christ. And to ignore that is to ignore the massive work of what the gospel has been doing. And so out of the fruits of these past few verses, we get to verse 29. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. If you are Christ's. So your easy application question for this week, are you? Have you put your faith in Christ, in him alone? Have you realized that righteousness, your right standing with God, comes by grace through faith in Christ alone? If so, you are children of Abraham, heirs to the blessing, heirs to the promise, co-heirs with Christ as the children of God, the sons and daughters of God. What does that mean? What does it mean to be an heir to the promise, an heir through God, a child of God? What in the world does that mean? Come back next week and we'll talk about it. The promise of a blessing remains today. That blessing was so much greater than land or descendants. It was a new relationship, a right relationship, a freeing of us from sin. And it was Jesus who fulfilled that promise and in doing so fulfilled the law as well by dying on the cross and providing for us by grace through faith a new life. And that new life is here and now today. It is not just for later. It is not just for eternity. The promise matters for us today. If we who are truly baptized into Christ, have truly put on Christ, will walk into the new life and live in response to the grace and love that the gospel has given us, that the gospel saves us too. It's easy to play Christian. But what Paul is talking about here, and the heir and the blessing and the promise, this is for those who have truly put their faith and truly been submerged and baptized into Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It is the life-giving, freeing, saving reality of the gospel. And it changes everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you We thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you that you have given us, that there is truth. That in a world that is so bendy, in a world that is, wants to make nothing set in stone, make nothing absolute, you give us actual absolute truth, your word. And sometimes it's hard to comprehend, it's hard to understand, sometimes it's hard to just obey. God, help us. 
Those are those times and places where we need you to help us to, to learn, to understand, to listen and obey. We need you to even give us the boldness to obey. To stand in the truth of your word. Lord, I pray that we would, that we are so tempted to add to the gospel. We are so tempted to try and earn and work because sometimes it feels like it's so much easier. It gives us some sense of control. It gives us some sense of power and presence. The only power and presence we need is yours. Help us to remember that. Help us to enjoy that. Because there's life to be had for us, God. Thank you. God, when we lose sight, when we get so caught up in ourselves, when we lose sight of who you are and what you have done and what your son has done, bring us back, remind us. Help us to rediscover the gospel, the great need that we have for a savior. The great reminder that you are doing a work in and through us, that you are making us more and more like Christ. Help us to live into that, to enjoy that, to celebrate that, and let that reality do what it's made to do, change everything. Not only our outward interactions and relationships, but our inward thoughts and desires. God, I pray that if anyone doesn't know you, if anyone is still working, still trying, still just dog-tired from trying to be this perfect person, trying to win and earn your affections, God, I pray that you would break down those walls, that you would remove those hindrances so that they would hear the truth and reality that there is grace to be had, there is forgiveness to be had, there is love and mercy and joy to be had by placing our faith in you by admitting our need for a Savior, believing Christ died for, our died for our sins on the cross and choosing for Christ to be our Savior and Lord. God, we thank you and praise you as we go into the world. Help us to be these lights that you have made us to be. We pray all these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen.